All right. Well, we'll just we'll get into it then. Um, welcome back to Oscar Bait, everyone. Um, we know we said the next filmmaker we were gonna dive into on our show was Kiyoshi Kurosawa, which we are still going to do, but uh, someone else that we've talked about since we became friends just wouldn't stop <laughs> in our ears and in our dreams and in our hearts. So we have decided to do something probably foolhardy and uh, make an attempt to go through based upon the, uh, you know, the Bible, Stephen Thrower's book, uh, to go through the 173 uh, feature films of Jess Franco, if we can. So we are going to do We're that. We're going to do our best. We're going to do our best. And who knows? So you're actually, you're actually starting at the beginning yeah. and go through the whole arc. Yes. And we're going to follow, we're going to follow what uh, Stephen and Julian Granger put forth in that book and do it in order of when they were making them. So we can also track, you know, his obsessions and all, all these things. Um, so yeah, the, this could take us years. Who knows? We may yeah, never be it. the same. We may just be <laughs> complete shells of ourselves by the yeah. end of it. But it could it could be the end of us. Um, but we're very excited, and we thought, what better way to kick this off than to invite someone to join us again, um, who's been on the show before? Uh, but this is someone who uh, I know for both John and I, and imagine a lot of our listeners is one of the main reasons any of us can see these fucking movies, especially in, um, you know, excellent versions with actual special features and interviews and all that good shit. Um, but yeah, someone who really has been banging the drum for Jess Franco for a long time. Um, so we want to welcome back uh, co-founder of Severn Films, David Gregory. Hello. Thanks for welcome having back me. to the show. Thank you. <laughs> yes, you're, in the, you're in the two-time club. <laughs> and you guys can't see it but uh uncle jess is present right over david's shoulder for this conversation so it is it is sanctioned by jess himself <laughs> <laughs> yeah director it's like that criterion director approved <laughs> yes. exactly. he's yeah. giving the yeah. thumbs up <laughs> uncle jess approved um well yeah like i said you were you were one of the uh, main people who's really been I can't imagine how much work it takes uh, for these films, especially. Um, There's some other labels as well that have, uh, you know, helped make these accessible. And we always want to, you know, give love to Nigel Wingrove at Redemption. And of course, everyone at Blue Underground. Um, and there, you know, there are a couple others as well. International. Mondo Macabro. I've done a Mondo fair few. Macabro. Yep. Um, but like I, like I said at the top, you, Severn is the first place I started seeing Franco films. Um, so to kick this off, we kind of just wanted to dig into, you know, where it all started for you, where you where you encountered the work of Jess and how we, you know, all the way up to now. <laughs> well, I actually, the first encounter I had with Jess was, was Bloody Moon, which would not be what many, including Jess himself, would consider a typical Jess Franco film, <laughs> yeah. uh, but still one of my favorites, if not my absolute favorite, because I, I, I you know, I, I do revisit it uh, from time to time, and I just think it ages like a fine wine. It's, uh, it's basically I did last time I watched it, I double featured it with pieces, and it's perfect uh, accompaniment to pieces as you know, oh. a Spanish set. 
um, approximation of an American style slasher. And um, yeah, and 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 I saw that when I was ten or eleven with Carl, my co the co-founder of Severin, when we were in school and um, rented uh, tricked my dad. Not well, I didn't really trick my dad into rent. It just kind of beat him down uh, <laughs> into renting us, you know, the 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 goriest looking film at the video shop because that's what we wanted to see. And um and yeah, we thought it was the best movie we'd ever seen. And I don't know that I that I still think it's the best movie ever, but it's definitely up there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So so yeah, yeah, so that's really where it all began to for me. And I didn't really know Jess Franco by name at that point, even though, you know, I saw several of his movies during that era. Um, it was later when I started doing uh, reading fanzines and, uh, you know, eyeball and uh, in the flesh and uh, stuff like that. The fanzines that were coming out in England in the late 80s was when I understood that he was the, the, this prolific filmmaker. And I would I would talk to fellow collectors in England at the time, uh, particularly Mark Morris, who is still around. And he recently did an edition of the erotic rights of Frankenstein on Nucleus in the UK uh, and still works with us in various capacities. But he was the guy who had the biggest video collection that I knew of in England. So he would say, oh, yes, I've just got the sadist of Notre Dame in. And I these were movies I'd never even heard of. I'm like, what a title. You know, it's uh, <laughs> I, I, I need a copy of that. And so he would be he would he would uh, fulfill those wishes and just send you, oh, I've got this longer version of the demons, which has come in, that sort of thing. Uh, Love Letters of a Portuguese Nun on you know, third generation from a Greek cassette. It's got five extra seconds in it, you know, that kind of stuff. So that's kind of when I when I started learning more about Jess Franco, you know, the, the uh, prolific filmmaker. And it wasn't until... Um, Blue Underground, when I was working with Blue Underground, that I really uh, I really became fascinated with him, which is when they unearthed the negative for, which actually I think Mark Morris actually was the one who found the negative for you, Jenny, uh, the story of her journey into perversion. Oh, and wow. so that was one of the first Blue Underground, Justine and Eugenie were the first Blue Underground um, uh, Jess Franco desks and so I was working with Bill those first few years of Blue Underground and we set up the first interview session that I did with him for those desks. Insane. <laughs> yeah it, it, within that like when you realized that you were going to start getting into Franco were there I know you mentioned a few but were there only were there a couple that really like stuck in you and you were like shit this is never going to end maybe like this is probably an obsession that is just going to keep building because now my I'm I'm so wedded for the appetite. Well, it, it probably was Eugenie, the story of her journey into perversion, because when I, when I watched that in conjunction with meeting Jess and Lena for the first time, um, I watched Justine at the same time and we interviewed him for two others for that session as well. And I can't remember what they were. Um, maybe, maybe the two Fu Manchu movies, but I know I interviewed him about four movies when we did that first sit down at their house in Torremolinos. And that was when I also got the book Obsession. And so that's really when I started to, you know, look into it as something that was really worth further 
diving into further study to to put it kind of pompously um where where i was uh where where i was like okay there's more to this than because because i'd been fairly dismissive of 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 some of it during that uh late 80s phase when i would get this tape from mark morris it was like oh let's just kind of soft porn with like really badly framed because they were always cropped you know these now we see how beautifully shot so many of these movies were but they were always cropped on vhs and censored and and obviously muddy third generation films so it did that so it was it was hard to see kind of what was special cinematically about them at that point apart from the more obvious ones like bloody moon which you know uh which which fit the bracket of of gory slasher movie you know one of the main reasons we wanted to do this is because he is one of those filmmakers that at least when like we were growing up, like sometimes the only movie you could see by him was like Oasis of the Zombies right. or like uh, uh, the, the Count Dracula, which have their things, but it's they're not necessarily the ones that like grab you. And you're like, I, I get what this what makes this guy special. That's that's exactly right. And uh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. You. No, no, please take that. I, I was going to say that's exactly right because you look at Count Dracula on the surface and you think, oh, this is obviously going to be the pinnacle of of his career. Like, look at you know they're doing Dracula. Christopher Lee wanted to do it as the novel. Look at this cast. Uh, you know, it's a Harry, Harry Allen Towers production, which doesn't necessarily mean you know amazing quality, but it's definitely on the higher end of production value that Franco was used to, and then. Then it's um, not quite the sum of its parts when, uh, when, when, when I first saw it. But again, that's a movie that's actually grown on me over time. When I first saw it, I think it was in the 90s. And again, I hadn't sort of like understood the obsessive side of, of, of being a Jess Franco fan at that point. I was still like, oh, it's a, it's a hammer adjacent that I haven't seen. You know, that's kind of where it fits into into my mind at the time. And then and then it was like, oh, this isn't as good as Taste the Blood of Dracula or or, or whatever it might be. Um, so so that but that's kind of evolved as as time has gone on as well, because though that towers period is a pretty fascinating period and absolutely pivotal. Uh, in the on the one hand, he got probably the biggest budgets he ever got in his career. But on the other hand, it kind of taught him that that's not what he wanted to be doing. So making Vampires Lesbos after right after Count Dracula, not he probably made ten movies in between. I need to look <laughs> but very soon afterwards, he's making Vampires Lesbos, which is also you know an adaptation of Dracula, but a much more Jess Franco adaptation of Dracula. And you can see how much more control he has, how much more, uh, how much more it's. Uh, it's it's a Jess Franco film than 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 a Harry Allen Towers film, and you know, in a lot of ways, that's that they're the ones that really shine. Yeah, it's funny when you see his movies. You often think, well, the bigger the budget, obviously, this guy's going to cook. And it's so funny that his that that um, that alchemy, that special alchemy that Franco films can produce. I've always found when he's working with minimal means. And he doesn't have like Jack the Ripper. That's one of his most beautiful looking movies, but it doesn't still have that surrealness that he's so good at hypnotizing you with. Is yeah. that something you felt? Yeah, absolutely. And I think when we started to discover the golden films, the the early 80s period films, which we've now done many of. But when we it was I think it was probably our third release on Severin was Magical Living Dead and, and Macumba Sexual. They were the first two golden films that we did. 
And and again, it's sort of like, uh, how are people going to respond to this? You know, it's like they, these films are kind of odd, you know, and Magic of the Living Dead in particular. It's like it's always been touted as this lost blind dead movie, which it isn't at all, you know. Um, but but then you look at it and what an incredibly sharp movie it was and because these 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 um uh these negatives had not been touched basically and since the film was shot it was absolutely immaculate to get these standard definition transfers of these films which we've recently uh, upgraded to 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 blu-ray but those were the films where it was just him lena uh, a few friends and a location that they had complete control of or locations that they had complete control of. And so while the budget was was nothing and the resources were nothing, well, that's where he really was able to, you know, make make his films. And I know this is a term that obviously people like define incorrectly, but I think I'm using it correctly here. He's, he strikes me as truly one of the most impressionistic filmmakers in that he doesn't it just seems to capture things as they start and as they happen. And it's, it's that desperation of the impressionist painters that it's like, I have to get this. I have to capture this sunset, this Lena silhouetted against a rainbow. It's, it's, you know, there's not too many people. that I think that's a good way of putting it. I think, you know, the, the impression was because he hated to waste time on, you know, setting things up so that they were perfect. He wanted to capture what was right there and move on, uh, you know, often because he was trying to get so much done in a day, but certainly he didn't, he didn't have the patience to be actually setting up in a Kubrickian way or something like that. You know, he didn't <laughs> want that kind of uh, perfection. So it is an impression that, that he's going for, particularly as he sets himself up in places where whichever direction you look, it's gonna look good at a certain, you know, in a certain light or whatever it is and often natural light uh because that's obviously quicker as well you know mm -hmm. i think it it highlights to when i so i'd seen quite a few franco films at first kind of like what you said without realizing it you know i was just watching these because they were you know they're coming up in lists and magazines whatever and i i didn't dislike any of them but i hadn't caught it yet like it hadn't, you know, it hadn't taken hold of me yet. And it was actually what did it is a confluence of things. But when you put out your Blu-ray years ago now of the hot nights of Linda. Yeah. Right? And so I was very excited. And I remember when it came in the mail, I was living in Denver at the time. It came in the mail and I was so excited. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to watch this notorious thing first, this hot banana version. That's what I'm going to watch first. And at this point, I had basically seen zero sex films in my life. Like, you know, the, maybe one here or there, but basically nothing. So I put that on and the combination of being so overwhelmed <laughs> by like seeing that kind of thing happening on screen put me into this headspace where I just kind of submitted to what was happening to me. And then I remember as soon as it ended, I was like, holy shit. Like that was... Like, I think that might have been a masterpiece. And then I you know, popped in the Blu-ray of the other cut, watched that. And I was like, oh, my God, this is. And it, and I was hooked. And it was because of that moment where I, I was able to just completely <laughs> give myself to what was happening on screen. And as soon as that happened, I was just so sick with it. And at every turn, I was like, no, all of you are wrong. Like this. No, this is like one of the most brilliant secretly art house filmmakers in history. Yes. If yeah. you just like, if you just stop trying to fight it and you can put away, you know, 
all your preconceived notions. Like you said, put away that everyone has to be like Kubrick with these perfect shots and just let these movies wash over you. And it's truly fucking magic. Yeah, (laughs) that's that's exactly right. Uh, Um, uh, I'll go ahead, John. Well, I was just going to say, obviously we know that trying to, to like sing, it's easy. It's one thing to sing the praises of Franco, but it's another thing for an uninitiated person to be like, all right, you need this guy rules. Here's exactly where you need to start. I, I it's it's obviously you could probably pick something for each new day, but like, what do you think have been the biggest issues with Franco's reputation? Was it just the way what was released first? Was it Will and I constantly talk about how people like to always compare him with Jean Rolin, who very different filmmakers, yeah. they explore different things like what did you come across that maybe you felt like, oh, this is kind of helping contribute to this idea that he's a quote unquote, not good filmmaker? Yeah, well, I, I think it is things like Count Dracula, where 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 there is kind of this expectation of what it should be versus what it actually is. Yeah. Uh, and I think you could probably say the same about Bloody Judge and even Justine to, a, to an extent. I mean, basically, he's he's kind of in this filmmaking world that he's not entirely comfortable with i think you know and so those already it's like well obviously he's rubbish if he can't make something as good as the scars of dracula you know right like roy Roy wood baker did then then what use is he you know but i usually said i usually with the uninitiated i usually say you know start with either vampires lesbos or she killed an ecstasy or even venus in furs the 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 towers film that i would argue is is the most like a Jess Franco fever dream film. Um, and, but because it's got the higher production values and the famous people in it, you know, it's, it's probably easier to digest for the uninitiated, uninitiated, you know, uh, but it does have all that kind of dreamy weirdness and color and jazz and, and various things that are Jess Franco's obsessions that might actually be a good stepping stone to, I don't know, Virgin Among the Living Dead next or, or Doriana Gray or something like that before you start going deeper. Yeah, I feel like I've I've always I mean, Will has probably been a longer Franco file than I have, but we I mean, it was probably during the pandemic that I really decided I'm going to drill down on these Franco titles. Like I've always enjoyed him, but I haven't gotten I didn't quite get it, but it is when you notice that these like the cinematic world he's creating, even if the film isn't his best, even if Stephen Thrower doesn't give it the biggest praise (laughs) next to something else they really do make up this kind of like fucked up patchwork quilt of like i mean it's obviously like he reuses ideas he reuses themes i mean he reuses characters i mean doctor how many times does dr orloff yes exactly pop up (laughs) i mean is this do you is this something that's always interested you about him that he kind of has this gigantic universe yes that that's something that obviously comes with time the fact that there are you know that uh 
you know, in, in film theory terms, they're like auteur things, aren't they? They're like the the repeat of his themes and the the repeat of his characters, the repeat of stuff that that basically you know makes it his full body of work. But it is you know something Tim Lucas said early on was that you have to see all Franco films in order to understand a Franco film, which I, I'm not quite sure that that that's necessarily the case. But but it's certainly it certainly helps to have seen a lot of them. It certainly helps to have have, have gone deep in order to start uh, uh, appreciating them, you know? Yep. Is yeah. there, on, on the flip side of this, just for fun, are there any Franco films off the top of your head that you think people should for sure not start with? <laughs> Oh, that's good. I, mean, I would I would say things awesome films like Macumba Sexual and Lorna the Exorcist, you will not get as much out of them if that's where you start. <laughs> yes, yeah. It's, it's, we, were, just, we were talking yeah. about it with, with Shining Sex, actually. Yeah, Shining Sex is a perfect example because that's that's yeah. now one of my favorites, but oh but it's, it's incredible. Thought, like yeah. I, I revisited and I was like, no, this is like a towering achievement of a movie. But yeah. if I gave this to someone who didn't wasn't familiar with his world, they would they would be very upset. <laughs> well, we because we we were trying to figure out one that we want to show at the Music Box Theater in Chicago, and so we were like trying to figure it out. And Shining Sex was the one we were talking about, and we were and Will was like, "Maybe I don't know, I don't know if that's the first one." And it's like, yeah, you you do kind of almost would have to like make a case to stick through the first twenty minutes and just be like, "Listen." This is not what you want, but you're going <laughs> to like it. And then as soon as she starts getting oiled up outside, that thing becomes like a movie from another planet. It's it's truly art house in the sense that it isn't even it goes beyond the the Renee ripoffs, the Antonioni ripoffs. It, it really finds its own little alien world. I know when we were doing when we brought Jess and Lena over for Fantastic Fest when uh, Fantastic Fest had them as guests, um, uh, which which I'm very glad they did because it was the last time I saw them both together and it was the last time fans in the US got to got to meet them, but they were also struggling with what films they should play uh, for you know the, the the more kind of general Fantastic Fest audience. They didn't want to you know throw them in deep and I remember Lars over there was programming I was like you know we've got the hot nights of Linda we've got and he's like yeah but that for me that's great but for this audience who probably doesn't know who these people are or or only have you know read about them that those probably aren't the places to start so they ended up playing Succubus Venus in Furs both both great um you know but definitely more palatable for the uninitiated um but they needed one with Lena as well because you know she was going to be there. Uh, so they ended up picking um, Bear Breasted Countess. Um, oh shit! Yeah. yeah. So uh, so yeah. So that was that was the, the, basically the most palatable title that they had from the Lena period that they could that they could come up with of those however many uh, you know tens hundreds of <laughs> hundred films or whatever. <laughs> that was the one they came up with. Do you feel that, like, with him, the easiest probable pathway for, like, a, a massive film-going audience might be through the, I mean, probably, obviously, through the horror community, because, yeah. like we're saying, Count Dracula kind of throws people off a little bit. But then it's been unavailable for so long until now, really, is uh, one of the films that I recommend to people. It's like, oh, you like the gothic horror stuff but you want this delirious fever dream vibe that he provides. I always recommend Dracula prisoner of Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. 
That's I, an awesome I, film. Yeah, it's amazing. That's a just one of the best. Yeah, mm-hmm. and well overdue for a remaster. Mm-hmm. Seriously. <laughs> Seriously, that's those are the that's the kind of movie you truly like. I always try to describe it as if you're a horror fan, that's the movie you've been wanting your whole life to spring out of some bizarre mind that you had no idea it's waiting for you because it's just. It's this like Earl C. Kenton, like House of Frankenstein, Dracula thing, just blown up into. Oh, it's it's yeah. I find anyway. It's, fine. it's I funny you mention that. You've just reminded me of something again. When I was when I was still in high school uh, in England, they they a central television that was kind of our region, uh, our regional network of the four channels that we got at that time we're supposed to show Dracula prisoner of Frankenstein. They had it in their listings. And I remember Mark Morris calling me and saying, tape this, tape this. It's very hard to find this movie. And I remember staying up and uh, uh, getting ready to record it. And then saying, and then the announcer saying in a change to our scheduled programming, we're Mm -hmm. not going to be showing Dracula prisoner of Frankenstein. We're going to be showing Dracula has risen from the grave. And I remember that (laughs) complete about face to what I was talking about before. It's like, I've fucking seen that, you know, it's like, (laughs) You know, I've seen it a hundred times. Yeah. <laughs> it's great, but it's not what I wanted to see. You know, oh. so I remember calling Central like incessantly. When are you going to program it? What's what happened? And like we'd have no further information. You know, they probably just watched it and were like, "Yeah, can't pull that on." Someone actually watched it first. <laughs> the Dracula and Frankenstein movie, you know, and then they're like, oh shit. <laughs> oh yeah, there's this like torture thing with the director <laughs> mentally deficient manservant. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Um, but it is, yeah, I, I guess I could understand their reasoning for that, but boy, I would be pissed too. Because <laughs> you couldn't get it. And if Mark Morris couldn't get it, that meant that it was impossible to get. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I still have like the imported Spanish Blu-ray of it. I mean, that's the only thing I've ever found of it. Yeah, and it looks well, it's, great. A, it's a hard one to find. The negative is lost, and um, and the ha- and you know the owner is uh, elusive, should we say? So it's not been it's not been an easy one to pin down. I think the last English friendly release was like Tartan in the early two thousands. It's been it's been a while. Oh, well, I don't wanna, um, while we while we've got you, I don't want to blow past the very unique, beautiful thing that you have spent time with Lena and with Jess. Um, I actually I rewatched this morning when I was getting ready for this. I watched uh, Donald Farmer's three hour uh, <laughs> interview. What's he, he called it? The bizarre world of Jess Franco. Uh-huh. Um, them sitting at the table and just what uh, the just the amount of times that. Jess like clearly didn't want to answer and wanted to go a different direction of what Donald was asking, and Lena would just wander off and smoke cigarettes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's it amazing. But you know, I just I would you know just would love to hear what it was like to get to actually spend time with these folks. You know, it was very smoky. Uh, <laughs> was, uh, no, they 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 were both uh, they both were lovely. I mean, they. Um, the first couple of times it was just kind of in and out, do the interview done, you know, and then as uh, time went on, uh, you know, we would hang out afterwards and go for a dinner and drinks or whatever. And so that's, that's when the, the sort of real 
as real as you're going to get Jess Franco, you know, when he's talking about stuff other than his movies, when he's just talking about film in general or food or travel or, you know, the stuff that the, 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 the more kind of day-to-day stuff that he was passionate about was where it uh, was where it really became enlightening. Um, and, and Lena, I mean, Lena was just, was just, just, you know, she, she also opened up a lot more when she wasn't talking about the movies. I mean, we didn't interview her a lot of the time about these individual movies because she didn't really know the difference from one to the other. Not that she was just not an important part of it. She was like both in front of and, and behind the camera, but she didn't really differentiate which film was which, particularly as they were shooting many at the same time. Um, (laughs) So her, 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 uh, you know, she could, she, I think we had her on the Macumba Sexual interview, for example, but she could talk about Ajita Wilson. She could talk about the, um, the location where they shot in the Canary Islands, that sort of thing, but not necessarily go much deeper than that. Whereas Jess, was amazing in that any film you could we you there would usually be a bit at the beginning of the interview where he was like which film are we talking about and i'd have to go through several different titles and maybe describe (laughs) the film and then as soon as the penny dropped as to which film we were talking about that's when he could just go off for an hour and often he went off on tangents you know that that didn't necessarily have anything to do with that movie but uh it didn't matter because it was always something particularly interesting you know um and yeah and i don't know if you've seen those interviews but his granny ash on his uh yeah, oh. were just like just just go 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 it's almost like you know he didn't even smoke some of those cigarettes he just happened <laughs> to have the cigarette in his hand um, but anyway yeah he was uh, he was it was pretty remarkable how he was able to recall so many of these details and maybe some of them he just made up in order to give me what I needed, but um, yeah, you know, no that, was, that was always colourful too, you know. Because oh, yeah. he, he's, he's quite famously uh, tells tall tales in order yeah. to, you know, build up kind of a legacy around what what he's done as well. Well, it's, yeah. the, it's the someone one of my friends once after watching as many Joseph Franco interviews as they could find said he's better at ecstatic truth than Herzog is. <laughs> Yeah, thinking about it like that there's always truth in the stories but whether or not the details are real doesn't really matter that's it yeah exactly and you think about it he's like he told probably started telling a lot of these stories pre-internet and pre you know uh, mass um interest in him so you know he could certainly get away with a uh you know telling certain stories (laughs) happening in a certain way a lot easier than later on you know yeah. Didn't, didn't he say he published something like 20 to 35 novels before he yeah. became like a <laughs> yeah so i've got so in the in the latest in the land of franco we have um alan petit who's kind of the 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 godfather of jess franco uh appreciation and 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 written criticism and steve thrower together so we have the two of them the meeting a summit meeting between oh two biggest Franco experts in the world. Uh, and it's awesome. I mean, they get along fantastic. They both have this great mutual appreciation. And just, you know, a lot of it is us just walking around the streets of La Grande Motte and the two of them just 
talking Franco. Uh, but anyway, one of the bits at the end, they 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 go into that, and they uh, he and Alan Petit says, you know, Jess was a liar. He was a liar. He told lies, and I sometimes he would see me standing next to him when he was talking to an interviewer, and he would know that I knew he was lying, you know. <laughs> but also, and then Steve brings up the uh, the idea of these David Kuhn novels, which <laughs> clearly do not exist. You know? and, you know, back then, he could have he had he had to keep that story going because uh-huh. he, you know, t- told it before. But I think at this point, it's pretty clear they never were published yeah he didn't see <laughs> Even the, if they were written i, yeah. I highly doubt they were written either but <laughs> yeah I did. he didn't count on the internet coming through <laughs> different time <laughs> well it's like he he it's almost like he took more than just a kind of stylistic inspiration from like Orson Welles or Fritz Long. He took their bullshitting too. Their their grand bullshitting. Yeah, exactly. And I I, I don't know when when that particular uh, line of bullshit first um, emerged. I mean, Alan and Steve could tell you better about that. But uh, but I would think that he was trying to make it seem like a bigger deal that he was basing this story on a published novel, you know. And so he would, and then and and then maybe trying to tell some investor that he's published all these novels and therefore there could be a franchise out of it something like that i mean that seems more like why jess would do something like that rather than to try and big himself up i think he's more likely to be trying to find a way to convince people to give him money to shoot the movie yeah a true Uh, hustler yeah (laughs) that makes total sense did you ever get any okay you, you probably didn't but did you ever get any info on what happened when he and lena ran off together when they when they met and became a the beautiful couple they we know them as you know this this is also covered a little bit in the latest in the land of franco because um this happened around the time that alan petit was first met um jess as well um and and yeah because she was with uh she was with his still photographer you know when they first worked together and um and, and yeah, and then basically they obviously she, she, you know, she was ready to move on, and uh, and they started as a professional couple first, and then became a became a couple. But when you said that they when they ran off together, I thought you literally meant when they ran off from a hotel, leaving. That's what I mean. That's, yeah, that's, so basically. Yeah. That's also so we stayed at that hotel, or Stephen Alan stayed at that that hotel in La Grande Motte, which is in the latest in the land of Franco. That's, that's and awesome. so yeah, and so basically, you know, we did ask them if they had books going back to the seventies to see if we could, you know, find that they didn't, unfortunately. Unlike the place in Hot Nights of Linda, where they actually still had that, you know, their uh, um, Alessano's autograph and Lena Ramey's autograph in the guest book. They didn't have that at this one, La Quetzal, it's called, in La Grande Motte, the hotel was. But yeah, they they were making a movie called Mandinga, I think, uh, which was never completed. It, well, it was completed, but not with any of the footage that, that Jess had actually shot, which apparently he had shot stuff. And basically he um, ran out of money and had spent all the money and basically under cover of night, him and Lena fucked off and basically left the cast in the hotel yeah. having to pay the bill. 
And so basically, and that was that. And this was people they work with again in future. So, you know, I mean, that's uh, how charming they must have been to to, to be around, that they actually forgave them for that. But I think this was uh, during, I think, Erwin Dietrich somehow. Yeah. With the ones who lost money. And so therefore... That's why Jess had to basically commit to making a bunch of films for Dietrich to pay off that debt uh, after, yeah. after he was rumbled. Yeah, <laughs> indebted to Dietrich for quite yeah. a while. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's funny because like Lena's ex-husband, that's still photographer, still worked with them up until like 1980. That's right. So they yeah, must have been exactly. so charming. <laughs> exactly. And we, the funny thing was we asked uh, we asked Monica Swin about that. And she was like, you know, I know what happened, but I'm I don't gossip. So she didn't really she didn't really give uh, us any more on how that went down, you know. But uh on, spill the tea. Obviously it worked out fine. <laughs> yeah. It reminds me, it honestly, it made me laugh. And when we start actually going through all these hundreds of movies, I'll get into it more, but it it reminded me of Fassbender and that crew of people who all did all sorts of things to and with each other, yes. but kept coming back. But it made me in part, I wish I could remember which movie, but there's a story about Fassbender and his like, you know, core crew. They're on a plane flying to shoot a film that was financed, ready to go on that flight. He wrote another movie that he liked better and so when they landed, he got off the plane and flew back to work on that and just left the whole crew. <laughs> exactly. Which, but they all, I don't they're, know. They're, I mean, the funny thing is, I never, I didn't really consider Jess to be, I mean, Fassbender was famously abusive to his, uh, uh, to his stock company. But, uh, but, you know, so there was a bit of, uh, you know, a bit of Stockholm syndrome going on that they all <laughs> stayed with him. But um but Jess, I you know, I didn't really get a lot. So people like Jack Taylor stopped working with him for that reason. They were basically like, okay, he he didn't pay me one time or or something along those lines. So that was it. I was done with Jess. No hard feelings. Enjoy your life, that sort of thing. Uh, but no, for the majority of them just came back for more. So I don't know that there can have been that many, you know, of those abusive situations, but um. But certainly, you know, when he got to his really small group with Antonio Mayans and 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 Lena in 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 the eighties, was where they, you know, they had a really dedicated dedicated handful of people who, you know, would seems like they would have come along for anything. Yeah, yeah. I mean, do you have any? Okay, do you have any information on the supposed other version of Oasis of the Zombies that he shot with Lena and that crew? Because I'd read that he hated that he had to do it, but he made he took the money and just made another version with his whole stock company, but it's never been released. Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure about that, honestly. But okay. I do know that, you know, in our um in our Franco archaeology that that certain unfinished things will show up in in archives or at least be listed in archives even if we can't see them so it it you know as he was always shooting and sometimes shooting two films two or three films at the same time it wouldn't surprise me if he if he actually did that but it would surprise me if he abandoned it you know because it does seem that uh, that something like that he would have sold to another producer if it was something that was actually complete yeah 
Maybe that's the case. Because I know he... Because didn't he only do Oasis Zombies because of Zombie Lake and that whole fiasco behind that? So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he often had falling outs with Eurocine and and Marius and Daniel Lasser about, you know, the projects that they wanted him to do versus the projects that he wanted to do. So, uh, and a lot of those, according to Jess, a lot of those um, Eurocine projects, he started himself and then took them to them for completion or 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 whatever they were they were his ideas with the exception of things like devil hunter and the cannibals where they came to him and zombie lake was probably similar situation where like right we need a zombie movie have at it you know um and for some reason or another he didn't do that one and they had to bring his general land uh but oasis of the zombies is also a a, a euro cine uh zombie movie so i don't know he obviously changed his mind at some point yeah yeah i guess it's like the same plot too it's just like whatever i guess there must have been something we don't know that took place there you know, that yeah. makes sense to me but yeah but again not people weren't uh, he, he probably wasn't expecting people to be analyzing his filmography so basically it's like oh you basically made the same film again here you know, so so uh, so it wasn't in in ways that we're now fascinated by finding these similarities and same character names and same plot points and stuff like that. It was probably easy for him to actually just do okay. I'll make a variation on that one that I've already done, and nobody's going to be any the wiser. That's true. It's like I'll just do Dracula again. I'll do it in the yeah. desert, and yeah. uh, we'll call him a Kumba sexual. That's exactly. <laughs> Part of what on that jumping off that part of why I was so excited to do this series, and again, you and many others in the home video industry have been leading the charge to get Franco the love he deserves. But I had forgotten about how much the quote breaks my heart at the awards when he got the Goya and he says, Let me see. I'm delighted as I have never believed myself worthy of anything. I think it's a lovely gift. And when I was, because I've been, of course, you know, I watched like a good 12 of his movies again in the last couple of days and have just been so overtaken more than ever how incredible he is. And when I read that, I I got teary and I was like, no, Jess, no, you have so much. He he also does. He also did kind of downplay his yes. importance because that then it's so much easier to face criticism isn't it because if you're the first to say like <laughs> i think all my films are rubbish what do you got you know it's <laughs> it's it's easier to to sort of face the incessant criticism that he that he received certainly from you know after succubus onwards basically you know after this this kind of high that he got where he might actually be establishment filmmaker or, or on the world stage uh you know after that he very much goes in in his own directions and so it's like well you you may think it's garbage but i do too so nope oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, well i guess we we can go into then um we'll lead up to everything coming up in your sale uh but you have two Jess Franco upgrades. I yeah. am very excited personally. Um, <laughs> I love I love both of these movies, and I can't yeah. wait to see you know your new scans of them. But we have Inconfessible Orgies of Emmanuel and the Sexual Story of O. Yes, um, Inconfessible to me is one of his funniest movies. Yes, and, and Sexual Story of O is truly top ten for me. I love John and I were talking about it before. I do love 
bummer jess mode yeah. <laughs> um, yes, exactly. i love when he really just leans into the darkness and that yeah. one's <laughs> it is it is it's a real downer yeah, yeah. but i love that it's these two together because again like i said inconfessible i think is really hysterical and he's so mean about these spanish men and their <laughs> machismo yeah it's funny when we first did these uh so these came out not long after mansion of the living dead and become sexual early in severin's life and um so when we first brought these to him for for interviewing, he he couldn't believe that we had even unearthed these movies. He was just like, well, oh, though these make Euro cine productions look like you know lavish, you know, big budget compared to the golden films. The golden films were nothing, you know. And then so, but the more we got into it, the more uh, we realized that that was you know primo Jess because that's him with absolute complete and utter control. You know, um, so anyway, yes, those were had just been DVD for for a while. And while we have several more Jazz Franco films in production, um, we had to get these out. We, we you know, it's it's silly to leave them DVD only. We already did Mansion and Macumba. So we wanted to do these two as well, which so now the first four Golden films that we ever did through Severin are now uh, Blu-ray friendly. I can't wait for to see that Blu-ray scan of Story of O because that's one of his most beautiful openings I, I I can think of, and it also is funny because it's like it's so beautiful and you know the story if you've seen it where it's going, and then you see that actress walking across the lawn, she gets hit with the water, yeah, and it's like oh, it's not gonna stop there, my dear, good lord, that ending, like I said, I love Bummer Jess and an unrelenting you know, close, closing, closing act. That's going to, I, I just can't wait. <laughs> can't wait to see yeah. it. And his making fun of, you know, rich libertines. I mean, I love the <laughs> conversation around the table where it's yeah. like, you no know, black women, Moors, maybe, Oh, they're disgusting. Oh, don't be racist. It's like, yeah. <laughs> wild. that's hilarious. <laughs> then the woman just pukes. It's like, what yeah. the hell is this? <laughs> well, I had actually, I showed someone in confessible, and sexual story of O one time to highlight that Jess had things on his mind <laughs> yes. in the realm in the realms of stuff like that because they were like oh it's just like this you know the dialogue never matters the stories don't matter it's just this sex all of that and I'm like well there you know we can go further on that but sometimes the dialogue very much matters and it's hilarious and really cutting <laughs> yeah. and that's why you know it's why it's so good is he uses it sparsely. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you know, yeah. no, one's, no one's talking unless he's got some shit to say. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, even in Bloody Moon or like Faceless, which, you know, are him trying to do these slash things. There's some odd lines of dialogue that are just like this guy is not in automatic pilot mode, you know, <laughs> and the like the weird disco music and Bloody Moon. Well, it's like it would, And in Faceless. I mean, I think, faceless, you yeah. know, the, the, the music there. but faceless is another one that's actually aged really well i think because i remember when it came out it was another it was kind of like a count dracula situation it's like oh look at the pedigree in this movie how bad can it be you know and then people are like 
oh, this is a little <laughs> rough around the edges, you know. <laughs> now you watch it, and I watched it with 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 an audience in in Texas last year. It's an absolute hoot, and and it's got some great splatter in it, which was never uh, something that Jess liked, yeah. um, you know. But uh, but obviously he was pandering to what was required. So mm-hmm. so yeah, and 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 what a cast and that soundtrack and the production values in Paris and all that kind of thing. Oh. The movie is awesome, and it still <laughs> looks like he shot. It. it still has the surrealness it's and it's got the plot that he's been obsessed with since his inception it's that's like right. that's right the eyes are yeah. yeah he's never quit. That was stolen from him if you uh if you if you ask him yeah which the man i love the the gall back then and the the safety net you had of having no one able to look this shit up exactly <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. off was first mm-hmm. or maybe the maybe the novel he wrote that it was based on that was yeah. first. yeah he wrote it down first that's for sure <laughs> you know it's funny i mean this is a good way to kind of before we move on with some of these releases you're talking about just to bring it full circle to when you were on last time talking about terrence fisher because brides of dracula was the movie that really t- like kind of set a lit the match for his career in many ways right because he saw it and was like oh i can do that but better Yes, yes, he 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 didn't like it. That was the thing. He sort of right, right up until the end, he he maintained that Terence Fisher was not a filmmaker; he was a journeyman. And uh, so, so you know, I think uh, I, I think if he probably revisited some of those films in later years, he might have changed that assessment. But who knows? Um, <laughs> but he certainly thought that they, you know, he he was very outspoken about him the things that he didn't like uh which was a lot uh you know in in cinema i should say in particular you know where where basically he's like no that's rubbish you know oh, oh what do you like of contemporary spanish cinema do you like almodovar no he's rubbish you know that that's kind of thing uh he did like alex de la iglesia but um but anyway it was it was it was like you say it was one of those things seeing Br- brides of dracula was like i could this this gothic thing piece of piss i can do that uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, it could have been part of his just bullshitting that he was like, "Yeah, I hate this movie," but deep down he's like, "Fuck!" Like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, he ended up in Christmas enough, so yeah. <laughs> it's like there's there's always something about it that he admires. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Not the rise of Dracula, but he's certainly in plenty of Terrence Fisher movies. When you have yeah. the the in in that Donald Farmer interview, that great moment where he brings up Matador. <laughs> and Bloody Moon being in there, he goes, "Oh yeah, yes, they reached out." Exactly. Yeah, sure, you knew about that. <laughs> yeah. So Although good. I must admit, when I first saw Matador, I was like, "Oh yeah, I could get into this filmmaker. He knows Bloody Moon." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I could see him be a little envious. He's like, "I should have had my characters also masturbating to my." <laughs> Damn it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> More of that in cinema. Any filmmakers listening? <laughs> Bring that back. Yeah, do do anything. Any any filmmaker listening, just do something. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll I'll quickly promote before we get to the rest of your releases. Since you brought up De La Iglesia, um, the call we're doing after this, uh, Axion Mutante will be playing at Music Box on August seventh. So. See everybody there. It's going to be alongside Body Melt, as it is another. It's another uh, Vendor Syndrome versus Severin event. So we'll see. 
I would think that's an unfair match, don't you? Oh, I, no. I agree. No, it wasn't. That was Severin not wins every, They win every time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think. Yeah, I think it's a. Yeah, it's pretty. No, he's in stacked. the room. I, I can bring Joe in and ask him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, we'll have a real true Severin versus Vinegar Syndrome off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you think it's fun with the movies? Just wait till we pit you both against yeah, each other. Yeah, put us in a cage, and the demon can be the adjudicator. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, do you want to? Um, we'll finish things out if you want to. Uh, you guys have been announcing shit like crazy. Um, yes, so we have our summer sale this weekend, starting Friday, uh, midnight, going into Friday. Uh, through Monday, and that's where uh, most of the old titles are 50% off SRP. So if there's stuff that's missing from your collection, the sales are the time to do that. Um, and then we have eight new releases, uh, special editions. Uh, we have the two upgrades of the Branco movies that we've already mentioned. We have UHD Blu-ray combos of Bad Biology, Frank Henelotter's movie. Um, nightmare aka nightmares in a damaged brain which comes with a ton of new extras including a long new interview with scavellini an interview with savini funnily enough who's uh oh. always tried to not answer questions about his involvement in this movie but Mike yeah. felt managed to persuade him to go on record about it we've also got a documentary on there called damaged by sarah appleton which is about david hamilton grant who was the guy who put the movie out in england and got jailed for it so he was the first uh, and only, as far as I know, distributor in the Video Nasty era actually got sent to prison for putting out this wow. movie. That's insane. And, uh, yeah, so it's, it's it's a pretty fascinating dude. He was one of those guys who found kind of loopholes for showing smut in the in England in the seventies when you could barely show naked flesh. There was private cinema clubs in Soho where you could have memberships and then you could show hardcore porn. And so he was one of the early adopters of of uh, distribution on VHS. And he made an absolute fortune for the first few years. And then, of course, the censorship clamped down and he got sent down. And then after that, his story gets even stranger. It's a complete mystery. You know, what became of this guy? But we've got all these interesting theories about, you know, very salacious activities that he got up to. So that's on the third disc <laughs> on Nightmare. Ooh. Um, Ooh. And then we also have The Psychic. Fulci's The Psychic is... Uh, is uh, getting the 4k upgrade and looks phenomenal oh. um what else have we got we cannot on... wait for the psychic 4k oh my god yeah it's and that comes with the the cd as well of the fritzy bixio tempera music uh oh and also a little music box yeah it's oh. piece of merch there playing the seven oh. notes Oh, uh, <laughs> just getting the vein ready let's get that <laughs> in there and um and then on Blu-ray, we have Private Crimes, which is a, a Sergio Martino, Edwige Fennec uh, miniseries made for Rye TV, which was kind of like their spin on Twin Peaks. So it's a murder mystery that they did together, which is fantastic. And it's like four feature length episodes. And um she stars and produces and so she came out of hiding and agreed to do an interview for us because she's been approached many times over the last 20 years and only ever did one interview for no shame uh but uh wow. has never agreed to any interviews retro uh interviews about any of her gialli since but she came out to do this one okay. uh, oh god 
And then we also have Juan Piquet Simon's uh, Journey to the Centre of the Earth, which yeah. is basically a Severin <laughs> Kids title from the director of Pieces. So uh, there you go. I think that's oh. it. I think that covers all of them. Bless you. Goddamn. I guess oh. I'll have to buy the majority of those you just listed. Yeah, on the I mean, severinfilms.com this weekend. Yep. Uh, tell, can we just real quick, can you just, what the hell is this Sergio Martino thing? I mean, you briefly talked, I've never even heard of this. Yeah. Well, so one of the things that, um, well, you know, the bottom fell out of the Italian industry in the in the late 80s, right? I mean, they right. were the, they, they used to produce so much stuff, which is why we've got so, so, such a bounty of riches to to choose from with uh, horror movies, action movies, sexploitation movies, spaghetti westerns, you know, every genre that if it was successful, they they would take it on and they would usually take it on pretty well. Then the bottom fell out of the business. Television took over. Uh, all their studios uh, were closing down or just became television production studios. So the filmmakers were either forced to retire or greatly slow down or completely lower their budgets. Um, like, you know, the later Fulci movies are just a shadow of the budget of the former ones, even though Zombie and House by the Cemetery and things like that aren't exactly mega budget movies compared to the stuff after The Devil's Honey, they were. Yeah. And so even a, even a, a name uh, uh, like him wasn't able to attract budget such that he had to get, you know, Argento to finance his final project, which never got made, which was Wax Mask. Um, so, but then Martino and his brother, um, were a little more savvy on the production side of things. So I, so they were able to move into TV. And so therefore this Sergio Martino, Edwige Fennec project was, uh, you know, in true Italian style after the success of Twin Peaks, they basically did, uh, a murder mystery of their own. Uh, and that's what it is. And so she uh, she plays a detective. Uh, Fennec plays a detective, and then uh, spoiler alert: her her daughter gets murdered at the end of the first episode, and then it becomes her looking for the the killer of her own daughter. Um, yeah, and it's put it's for Rai TV, which is the uh, the um, Italian equivalent of the BBC or or uh, Canadian broadcasting company. You know, their main channel. Uh, it 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 has pretty nice production values as well and we've been able to do business with rye since we got il demonio off them for the folk horror set with they oh, end yeah. up being quite a uh um quite a source of some interesting stuff that we're that we're working on amazing were they, were they uh at all the people that put produced uh that later sergio martino uh the scorpion with the two tails was that part of that the the movie that was supposed to be a television show that got truncated to like a movie. Not sure about that. Not sure about that. Okay. Yeah. I've just always, that's one of those great, like it's up there with the magnificent Ambersons for me. <laughs> it's like, I would love to have seen what he was doing with this, like Egyptian tomb. Yeah. Jello, but unfortunately. Not to be. <laughs> well uh thank you thank you again for coming back and joining us uh to, to kick off again this very foolish thing we're gonna do I, i'm i'm fascinated to see how you get on oh um, can't can't wait but, uh, yeah everybody buy yeah, yeah we'll go and we'll be pumping them out they'll 
do what we're doing in the four days until the 30th and figure out how to get enough money yeah. you can get everything um and you know head over for the sale also let's not forget that you have the black emmanuel box coming out yeah. which is fucking unreal <laughs> that's um, right that is actually landing uh week after next we'll be landing at our fulfillment place in arizona where that has been the single most difficult project to actually get to the finish line it's extremely oh, sure. <laughs> fast and dense uh, but also amazing so it's uh it's, it's something we're very proud of even though it Took something to get there, mainly for Kayla Janice more than more than me. But it would, but you know, certainly the whole team had to be involved in you know, keep seeing these discs that are chock full of stuff. It's uh, it was quite something. Yep. Insanity. Well, yeah. But thank you again, and uh, we'll see everyone back here soon for the beginning of this fucking journey. 